Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Positively Gam is sponsored by Vaseline. See how they are working towards equitable skincare for all at Vaseline.com. This message is brought to you by Regeneron. If you have diabetes, listen closely because your ears could help your eyes. Excess sugar from diabetes could lead to eye damage and vision loss, even blindness, and you might not even notice it at first. So remember, now is the time to get your eyes checked. Eye care is especially important with diabetes. See a path forward with actions and potential treatment options that may help your eyes and protect against vision loss. Go see an eye care specialist and visit nowic.com to take charge of your eyesight. That is N-O-W-E-Y-E-S-E-E.com. And so that's what we mean when we say Black Lives Matter. And I think that when you say what's the greatest misconception Mm -hmm. is that it's a plea rather than a rallying cry. Black Lives Matter is a reminder to us What's up, everybody? I'm Gammy, and this is Positively Gam. Every week, I have raw, in-depth conversation with inspirational people pushing for change on everything from aging, relationships, politics, wellness, to the current issues facing the Black community. In this episode, we're going to be discussing one of the most talked about movements of 2020, Black Lives Matter. The message has become a visual staple. Today, we take a deeper dive to understand the mission, principles, and misconceptions of the movement, and most importantly, the impact it's had on the community. Joining me today is Dr. Melina Abdullah, a professor and former chair of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles. 
co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Welcome, Dr. Abdullah. I am so excited to talk to you today. Like, what a way to start 2021. I am so excited to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to share space with you for quite a while. So I'm very excited to be with you. Yes, I'm glad that you took the time, please. And there's so much to talk about, but I think I just want to start by having you explain exactly what Black Lives Matter is, how it got started, and what the mission is. Sure. So Black Lives Matter was built really out of tragedy and outrage. We were born the day that George Zimmerman was acquitted in the murder of Trayvon Martin. And so we remember that all across the country, people poured out into the streets. And for those of us who are mothers, the theft of Trayvon Martin's life as a Black boy really resonated for us. I remember President Obama said if he had a son, he would look like Trayvon Martin. And I actually had a son who was three years old at the time. And he not figuratively, but actually looked like Trayvon Martin. Same shiny brown skin and dancing eyes and a little bit of mischief and a lot of joy. And I think we were expecting a different outcome that you know, he Trayvon wasn't the first black boy to be killed by white supremacy, but George Zimmerman wasn't really a cop and he wasn't even really white. His mother's Peruvian. And we thought the system's not going to double down for this one. And so when it did, when it said that George Zimmerman was getting off and getting his gun back and Trayvon Martin's life didn't mean anything. I think that we had no choice. We felt compelled. We felt we were di divinely inspired and compelled to, to do work. And so for three days in Los Angeles, we gathered. We don't really need a tweet or a Instagram post to tell us where to go when something goes down in Black Los Angeles, at least in, until very recently. We all went and gathered in a place called Lamert Park, right off of Crenshaw Boulevard. And so I remember that day. It was July 13th, 2013. And I, along with a bunch of other folks, I had gathered three other Black mamas and we did what we do, you know, fed our kids, bathed them, put them to bed and found somebody to sit with them. And then we poured out into the streets. And for three days during the daytime, we would bring our children with us. And at night, we'd find somebody to sit with them. But we engaged in what Dr. Brenda Stevenson calls intuitive organizing, right? So it's just the organizing that you feel led, that spirit feels, fills you and pulls you into. And on the third day of protest, I got a text from that originated with a sister comrade of mine named Patrice Colors. She's co-founder mm -hmm. of Black Lives Matter. And she invited us to meet at her Black artist community. It's called St. Elmo Village. And I was in the streets again with my biological children, my three children that were birthed from my body, but also who I call my spirit children, who are my students from Pan-African Studies at Cal State LA. And that night, about 30 of us circled up in this courtyard of this beautiful, it feels like an African village. And we pledged to build a movement, not a moment. And what we didn't realize at the time is that 
while we were in the streets, Patrice was organizing with a sister named Alicia Garza, who I didn't know at the time, but is a dear friend now. And then they later brought in Opal Tometi and said, we've been involved in struggles for justice for Oscar Grant and for Amadou Diallo and Sean Bell and Margaret Mitchell and all of these names that we could rattle off. Mm -hmm. But it's bigger than the individual names. So we have to honor the individual names. We have to honor Trayvon's spirit. And it's also about a system of policing that descends from a system of slave catching. And so it's not just about getting justice for Trayvon. We have to transform the system. We have to end that system. And so that's what we've been doing work on for the last seven and a half years. We believe, Dr. Manning Marable writes, that the systems under which we live are intentionally and deliberately designed to produce the outcomes that they do. And so then our charge is in transforming those systems, toppling systems that are murderous and oppressive and violent and that steal the lives of our people and building up new systems. So this is why we say reimagine public safety. And that's the work that we intend to do and continue to work on as Black Lives Matter. That brings such clarity to me. Mm. And we're going to delve into the defunding the police a little bit later on. But I want to ask, just considering the lengths that we have to go to just to be heard and just to be considered human beings in this country, it's exhausting. What do you think the biggest misconception about Black Lives Matter is? Do we even need to be concerned about particularly white people feel about Black Lives Matter. And I guess the only reason why I think about that, too, is because we do live in a global society and we do have to learn to get along. But we spend so much time assimilating into, I'm going to use your description, assimilation into what you describe as a white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative, capitalistic society? Are we losing ourselves in that? I love this question. I think the greatest victories of the Black Lives Matter era is the unapologetically Black approach that we've taken. Mm. That no, it's not our job to convince white supremacists that Black Lives Matter, this is not a plea. This is a rallying cry. This Mm -hmm. is an affirmation to ourselves, right? A reminder of who we are, a reminder of our power, a reminder of our beauty and creativity and the capacity that we have to really build the world in which we want to live. No, we're not pleading to anybody Mm -hmm. um, to see our humanity. We know who we are. We are the daughters of God and the sons of God, and we're divine beings. And We are, Mama Harriet Tubman is our ancestor, right? (laughs) We don't need to convince white folks of our value, but we do need to remind each other that all those things that they heap upon us, that they 
tell us that we are. It's not the truth of who we are. The truth mm-hmm. of who we are is who our grandmothers whisper to us. Is the we are the dreams of our ancestors. I saw that's a shirt. I think we're our ancestors' wildest dreams. We absolutely are. And so that's what we mean when we say Black Lives Matter. And I think that when you say what's the greatest misconception Mm -hmm. is that it's a plea rather than a rallying cry. Black Lives Matter is a reminder to us. Perfect. Perfect. Now, in 2016, you did a, a TED Talk, Melina, and it was describing resistance as the new normal. Can you break that down for me and talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. In that talk, I quoted Henry Highland Garnett, who says, let our motto be resistance. No oppressed people have ever secured their liberty without resistance. When we talk about a society that is white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative Mm -hmm. capitalist in its nature, we can't succumb to that system. And that's a beauty of being an African person. We have never submitted to our own oppression. We have always engaged in this resistance. So they try to take away our humanity. You know, when we think about chattel slavery, Um, In the Americas, that's really the core of chattel slavery is that white folks attempted to not just steal our labor, but to dehumanize us. Yes. We never submitted to that dehumanization. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. never, they would call us slaves, but we never saw ourselves as such. We might have been enslaved, but we were never slaves. We were always fully human with an unbroken connection to the divine and to each other. And so resistance is about that. Resistance is about dreaming and building a world where police are not the answer to our questions about community safety, where when we're in the midst of the greatest health pandemic of our lifetime with an economic fallout that's simply unimaginable, we reach back and say, what was the practice of Richard Allen and Biddy Mason and all of the founders of our sorority who said that mutual aid, that it is our sacred duty to use our collective resources to make sure that we are of service and that we are bound together to all of our people. And so you see this like resurgence of mutual aid Mm -hmm. where Black folks every Sunday are in Lamert Park, again, Lamert Park, right? Giving away backpacks and clothes and food and cooking for each other and making sure that even though this is the worst economic crisis I, I remember, right? We're making sure that nobody falls off. Even if they have to live in tents, we making sure we got tents and sleeping bags to donate. And so I think that is what resistance is. And it's also what abolition is. It's about resisting what is and imagining and building towards new worlds. So well said. You talked about on Martin Luther King's, the celebration of of his birthday, you did a Zoom call with co-founder Patrice Cullors. It was you and... Trudy Goodwin, who is affectionately known as Mama True. Yes. <laughs> She's one of the, our, our precious elders from the Black Panther Party. 
Lumumba Bendeli, I hope I'm pronouncing these names properly, and Dr. Akinyele Umoja. Those two are from the Malcolm X grassroots movement. So you did a, a, a Zoom call and your topic was keeping us safe, that we keep us safe, we being the Black community. Can you tell us a little bit about that discussion about community-driven approaches to keep us safe based on, as you all describe, preparedness, not fear? Yes. It's no secret to anybody that white supremacy, violent white supremacy has been unveiled in this country. So it's always been there, right? It's the foundation of the Americas, right? Um, The Americas were built on the stolen land of indigenous people and the stolen labor and stolen lives of African people. White supremacy is at the, the foundation. So when we hear a lot of this rhetoric about this is not who we are. No, this is absolutely who we are or who America is. Who America is, yes. It's not what we want it to be. And so Mm -hmm. how do we then do the hard work of undoing, of ending white supremacy? And as we watched that siege, that failed coup on the Capitol on January 6th, we were reminded that white supremacy is pervasive. It didn't begin and end with Donald Trump, right? It is everywhere, even in California, where we think we're a liberal state. And so it's important to move forward recognizing that and reminding ourselves of what got us this far down Freedom's Road. And it was a community-driven approach to safety that it's Black folks looking out for Black folks. It's Mm -hmm. working-class folks remembering that our interests are aligned. It's building approaches, and I don't want to belabor it too much with a personal story, but can I tell one real quick? Yes, please. So in August of 2020, I'm a single mom of three children. We were swatted. And what that means is a white supremacist, and it sounds like It was clearly a white supremacist. Typical Southern white male voice called into LAPD and made a false claim that I was being held hostage along with my three children. And this is how police are complicit because he actually said he was trying to send a message to Black Lives Matter. So they knew right off the bat that it was not a real call. Mm. Nonetheless, Police came to my home at nine o'clock in the morning, surrounded my home with assault rifles, helicopter overhead, probably 40 or so cops. When I came to the window, I I live off of Crenshaw, so I just thought something was going on in the neighborhood. It can be busy around here, but they were actually here for me. When I came to the window, two officers actually pointed their AR-15s in the window at me. So I did what mothers would do. I got my my kids to the back room, got them Mm -hmm. to safety. And I did have my comrade who helps with security present. And I just looked at him and I said, I have to go online. And I went on Instagram live and I was nervous about giving my home address out on social media. But I said, I don't have a choice. So I asked everybody, please get here as soon as you can, because in my mind, I said, if these people kill me, I don't want them to do it in the dark. I want everybody to see what happens. And Uh I didn't, I wanted to keep my children as safe as possible. So 
they had yelled, gotten on the loudspeaker and said, everybody inside this address, come out with your hands up. So I had my children secured in a back room, had the security person staying with them. And I put my hand out the front door and I said, there's a phone in my hand. There's just, it's just a phone. And I'm thinking of Corinne Gaines and the Mm -hmm. way she was killed. Yes. And my kids are screaming, please don't go out. But I had to pull them away from the house because what if they started shooting into the house, right? With my children inside. So as I walked out, what I didn't see when I looked out the window is there were about a dozen or so neighbors already standing outside. And when I walked onto my front walkway, and I can never tell this without tearing up, two of my neighbors who are also parents, Black parents, Mm -hmm. the husband walked up. Now imagine this, a Black man walks in front of these dozens of officers with assault rifles to me. And he goes, sister, what are you doing? Why are you leaving the house? And I said, my kids are inside. And he said, I get it. Mm -hmm. And he said, so the sergeant says, walk towards me. And Otis is his name. And he said, well, if you're going, I'm going. And he put his body right in front of mine. Wow. And his wife stood beside me and the three of us began to walk towards the police And we got there and it was clear they knew they were just there to terrorize me. They didn't even bother to check if I was okay, if I was who I said I was, if the kids (laughs) were okay. So they were just there to traumatize and terrorize. But afterwards, Sophia and Otis had me and my kids come to their house and they fed us. And I asked Otis, I said, why did you do that? Because if there's anybody more at risk than a Black woman, it's It's a a Black black man, man. a big Black man too. Yes. And he said, well, sister, if they started shooting, I wasn't going to let you be the one to take the first bullet. Wow. And so I'm sharing that story to say that it affirmed for me what we mean when we say we keep us safe. Mm -hmm. The police were there to maybe kill me. White supremacy was absolutely trying to kill me and possibly my children. But my neighbors, and it wasn't just Otis and Sophia, it was dozens. That's what I mean. That's why we keep us safe is such an important mantra. It's such an important practice that we trust each other to keep each other safe, but we also provide safety to each other. So thank you for indulging me in the personal story. But it's just for me, it was um, eye opening and life changing and gave me a trust in my people that I don't think could ever be quantified. Yeah. You have to experience something like that to to feel it to the depths that I'm sure that you do. Yeah. I'm so sorry. It just sounds insane. Yeah, it was insane. It was traumatic. And again, my people helped me to heal. They donated money to put bars on my house. Mm-hmm. You know, they relocated me. You know, they made sure I was fed. My children were fed. And and 
That's the practice. That's what got us through. That's that's how, you know, we are the descendants of enslaved people. We got each other through chattel slavery, through Jim Crow, through segregation, through COINTELPRO, through all of these things. We did that. And that's the truth of who we are. And I just think that's a beauty of who we are. Yeah. So you talked about about healing, Melina, and that was one of the points that Mama True was making in that call that you all had. And she spoke about the use of yoga and meditation and sound bowls and chanting, art and music, all of those things to help keep the community healthy spiritually. Talk to us a little bit about that, because our spiritual well-being is just as important as our physical well-being. Absolutely. So all of those practices that Mama True talked us through are imperative and they are spiritual well-being and our physical well-being are tied together. So if I don't meditate every day, I start to lose my mind. If I hadn't been prayed up, Mm. I sincerely doubt that I would have been able to be as deliberate and calm in the midst of crisis. And so all of that is hugely important. And I'm resistant oftentimes to the term that people use self-care, because I think that sometimes that can be selfish care. But community care and healing justice are really, really important. That it's important that we take the time. I have not, I pledge to myself that I'm going to walk every single day. And so I have not missed a day. I don't care if it's raining. I don't miss my walk. I don't miss my meditation. And then I also believe that our spiritual practices provide us with kind of a hedge of protection. That when we're doing Black Lives Matter work, often the first work we'll do is respond to a killing of somebody, right? So somebody was killed by the police and we go out and we're standing on their blood like literally. And when we go, we pour libation Mm. and we do work, spiritual work. But I still believe my grandma's with me and she's not going to let nobody touch me either. I think that's really important. It really is helpful, believe it or not, because during these times when You know, I and I had to remove myself from social media. I've talked about this before. I have to remove myself from social media from time to time because I get so riled up and I'm not out there on the front lines Mm -hmm. like you and and so, so many of the people that I've spoken with comfortably in my home, but just full of frustration and feeling very helpless and hopeless. So these Mm -hmm. measures to keep yourself aware but also to keep yourself in a safe and calm space spiritually and mentally is so important so that we can figure out what it is that we're, what our role is supposed to be to support all of you. I want to talk about that a little bit later, but that is important too, because we have a part to play in all of this as well. But so let's talk a little bit more about your ideas about defunding the police, because for me, I feel like 
defunding the police is just the beginning of trying to change a system that actually needs to be just abolished and recreated a completely different way. But understanding that that is such a challenge and that's going to take time. We certainly, like I said, starting can start with just defunding. So talk to us about the ideas, because I think people have a total misconception about that, of course. So see, Gammy, this is why I've been wanting to get with you. I love what you're saying. Absolutely. Defund the police was a budgetary, and we thought it was a really modest way of getting to abolition, right? Mm-hmm. That, and And I know it takes a while to bring people along with us, but Abolition is absolutely necessary. It would be ridiculous for us to say, you know what? We don't want to abolish slavery. Let's just reform it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's real talk. Right. Like it's got to go. Police are a vestige of chattel slavery. Police Mm -hmm. are the evolved form of slave catchers. So as ridiculous as it would be to say reform chattel slavery, that's the same ridiculousness with which we have to meet the idea of reforming policing. That said, not everybody is there. And they go, well, Mm -hmm. what do we do about safety if we don't have police? Because they haven't taken time to be imaginative and even be thoughtful, right? I don't know anybody Black who feels safer when a police car pulls up behind them. But It was really easy. So about a year into Black Lives Matter, we got a copy of the city budget. We were staging a protest and somebody handed us a copy of this city budget. And inside it had this pie chart. And it was all of the city's general funds and how it's divided up. And at the time, the portion of the city's general fund that went to police was over 50%. And we'd been studying this, but to see it in a pie chart, we're like over 50% of the city's general fund is going to LAPD. That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And so then we started sharing it with people who might have more conservative views than ours. And even conservatives were going more than 50%. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. So that's when we started talking about defunding the police. If you are spending $3 billion on LAPD, that's $3 billion you don't have to spend on after-school programs or libraries or mental health. And so we started talking about defund the police. And then it became when George Floyd's body was stolen, it became this kind of clarion call of the moment, of the movement moment, defund the police. It was a logic of if we divest from the police that put targets on the backs of Black people, we can invest in the things that actually keep communities safe. And that's what defund the police is about. We always couple defund the police with reimagine public safety because we want to use those dollars for the things that keep communities safe. And that, to me, is so in line with what Vice President Harris is suggesting, to rethink how we think about community safety. And it doesn't have anything to do with adding more police. It's about providing for, it's about providing housing, jobs and jobs opportunity, healthy foods, 
quality education, quality healthcare, all of those things. If you have those things, your crime rate is going to drop and you don't need the police. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. And they even admit it. They even admit that police have no business being mental health providers. No. Mental health providers are good at their jobs. Educators, when they're provided with enough resources, are great at their job. So how can we invest in those kinds of things? Yeah. One thing that was really helpful for me during this period last year when it was time to vote was because I was new to Los Angeles as a resident. And Black Lives Matter had on their Instagram all of... The, their views on all of the propositions that were out, all of the candidates that were out. And it was extremely helpful to me as someone who was new to the area to help me understand the views and the history of the candidates to understand all those million and one propositions that were up. And these are the kinds of things that organizations provide for people that are unaware and to help them make informed decisions when it comes to voting. And as a result, we were able to flip the Senate. And what are, can you tell us some of the things that Black Lives Matter, some of your successes and wins? During the election, and electoral politics is not our primary work, right? We no, like it's not. We like being out in the streets. We like, yeah. I like it. I get a little therapy from being able to cuss out the police chief, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, But electoral politics is important. So what we adopted is a motto of vote and organize. You know, voting also can't be discounted, right? When we lift up ancestors like Fannie Lou Hamer, we cannot say Fannie Lou Hamer's name and then not go out and vote. So we absolutely have to do that work. And so we we said we organize to get to the polls, but then we also have to keep organizing after Election Day. Some of the victories that we won are absolutely getting the evil that was occupying the White House out. So we got to be real clear. It's black people who voted Donald Trump out. We some were enthusiastic about Kamala Harris. I don't know many people who were enthusiastic about Joe Biden. But if that's what it took to get Donald Trump out, hey, and we've been able to at least get Joe Biden to say in his inaugural address that he's going to work to end white supremacy. So there's a win right there. Getting racial equity on the agenda of the new administration is a victory. But then there's also other electoral wins. We were able to pass Proposition 16, which gave formerly incarcerated people, it restored their voting rights in the state of California. Oh, that's huge. That was hugely important. We have people who joined Black Lives Matter, um, a brother named Eric, who said, you know, this is why I joined Black Lives Matter, because I'm able to vote for the very first time. We were able to get rid of the district attorney in Los Angeles County, who's one of those folks that Zora Neale Hurston says all skin folk and kin folk. So we had a district attorney who was one of those happens to be black people who actually signed off on the murders of 643 people 
at the hands of police and refuse to press charges against the officers who killed our people. Even 14-year-old Jesse Romero who was um, killed when he was, he was just accused of tagging. I don't know a 14-year-old child who hasn't written on something other than paper. 16-year-old A.J. Weber, who was murdered while he was leaving a Super Bowl party by Los Angeles County sheriffs, right? She signed off on those killings. And for three years, we protested outside of her office. And then the election opened up the way for all of that political education we've been doing for three years. We've been saying that she was complicit in these murders for three years and people heard us and they Mm -hmm. voted against her. And this is over Let me tell you, Gammy, the police associations were spending millions of dollars to try to get her reelected. We have no money. Black Lives Matter just got its first chunk of change recently. We are not paid organizers. I got a whole nother job. All of us do. But we overcame all of those millions of dollars of police associations because for three years, we've been talking to our neighbors. We've been building an awareness and community. And we got Jackie Lacey out of office. And actually, the DA, who knew DA, George Gascon, who is a white appearing Latino man, who it doesn't like when you look at these two, you'd say, why are they going... But he adopted our platform. He has reopened cases already. He has said children will no longer be tried in adult courts. He said he's ending the death penalty. He's ending gang enhancements. He says people will only be prosecuted for the crimes that they're uh, currently accused of. They're not going to be prosecuted because they live in the wrong neighborhood. And so we're really excited about that victory. Um, We also, again, Summoning in Ancestors, recently launched a website which we call our Contemporary Red Record in honor of Ida B. Wells. We're painstakingly keeping track of every single person who was killed by police in Los Angeles County. We are naming them. We have part of the site is called more than a hashtag LA.org where we tell their stories. But then another side of the site is called prosecutekillercops.org. And we are exposing these police who sometimes kill not one, not two, not three, but four and five people so that if the prosecutors aren't going to prosecute them, the neighbors, our communities can say these people are unsafe in our neighborhood. Yeah, this is so important. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to talk to you today because this is the kind of information that people need to be aware of, people that are interested and want to know and want to know how to stay involved. This is how you keep yourself informed about what's going on. We're going to move into, as we end with our wouldn't you like to know questions. And for the listeners, is there a a reading list that you would suggest of books that we might want to read that would help enhance our awareness and knowledge of what we're going through or whatever you, you would want to suggest? Sure. So I'm a professor, so I could give you 50 books, but I'll just give you a couple. I I forgot about that at the moment. Yeah. 
So I would absolutely read Patrice Cullors when they call you a terrorist. That's a must read. I'd also... I think I have that. Yeah, it's a phenomenal That's in my library. Yes. Okay. Yes. And there's a young adult version too. I know you got some young adults in your life. There's a young adult version as well. I'm I'm starting to read Stacey Abrams' book, Lead from the Outside. And it's really, really good. And then for me, the classic book is Black Power by Kwame Ture and Charles Hamilton. I believe everybody should start their politicization with that book. Of course, there's the autobiographies, right? By Asada Shakur, Taste of Power by Elaine Brown. Sometimes those autobiographical pieces are really good in pulling you in. And they're good stories, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's one thing you want to get off your chest? I don't know if you have one. I don't know if you have just one thing. Yes. I'll say this in a nice way. That... Liberal white supremacy is as problematic as violent, blatant white supremacy. So all these liberal white folks who want to brag about their one black friend at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. If you are passing policies and engaging in ways that are oppressive to black people, you are just as racist as the blatant white supremacists that you claim to counter. Exactly. And you are just as much of the problem. Right. You are not part of the solution. Don't get it twisted. Right. Yeah. What's a motto that you live by? A Bible verse. Faith without works is dead. Is dead. Faith without yes. works is dead. And my kids, I can tell you, they they actually think that I came up with that. I had to show them, no, this is in the Bible. I didn't because I say it so much. Faith without works is dead. Before you leave, please tell where people can find you on social media. Sure. You can find me on social media at Doc Melly Mel, D-O-C-M-E-L-Y-M-E-L. And Black Lives Matter is on Twitter at BLMLA and on Instagram at BLM Los Angeles. Thank you so much, Dr. Melina. I swear it was I just we could go on forever. Yes. We could go on forever. Maybe I'll have to have you back again. And maybe we should start that private book club. Yes, I would love that. I would love that. I hope that this is not the last, but the first of many times that we share space. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melina. Ashe. Ashe. And these are my takeaways from my conversation with Dr. Melina Abdullah. Be creative when considering how to be a good ally. Use your voice, your platform, your artistry, and your dollars. Ten toes down. This is a movement, not a moment. Now is the time for transformation. Use reliable and very available resources to keep yourself informed so you can participate, not just be a bystander. This is our community, and your involvement matters. And lastly, build Black, buy Black, bank Black. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to rate and review. Follow me on my Instagram at Gammy Norris to share with me your thoughts on the episode. I'm here, I'm talking, and I'm listening. As always, stay grateful, y'all. Positively Gam is produced by Westbrook Audio. Executive producers, Adrian Banfield-Norris, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Amanda Brown, and Fallon Jethro. Co-executive producer, Sim Hoti. 
Associate Producer, Erica Ron and Crystal Devon. Editor and Mixer, Calvin Bailiff. Positively Gam is in partnership with Art19.